This is episode 533 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When it comes to our understanding of the kingdom of God, what makes the early church different from us is that they lived in the realm of knowing God as their king and served him on earth while maintaining their rights and privileges of being a citizen of his kingdom and a child of the king. I mean, we talk about it. They lived it. We have our theological understanding of the kingdom, and they function like card-carrying citizens of his kingdom. And the difference between their lives in the book of Acts and ours is, quite honestly, profound. The early Christians, and many since then, have relished in the confidence and boldness that comes from knowing they are a child of the king and living in his grand and protected kingdom. Remember, Nothing can happen to a citizen of the kingdom that surprises the king. And nothing can happen to a child of the king unless the king allowed it and thought it best. This is where faith trumps our fallen senses. And this is where we begin to experience the joy and boldness that comes from knowing and living like we have God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit living and abiding in us. And this is the realm of life where we take God at his word and trust what he says no matter what. It's literally walking by faith and not by sight. Join us today as we discover how to experience the kingdom of God while living as ambassadors of the king on earth as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I want to make sure that we um, have an understanding of what we're doing as we're going through these various passages. I've been sharing with you for a while, and if your eyes are open and you're looking in the culture in which we live right now, you know things are not getting better. They're actually getting worse. Election coming up is even going to get worse. We have these mass shootings, and it's just a really terrible time in which we're living right now in our nation. Um, Your Christian faith will come under attack even worse than it's under attack now. And we can go and look and see how they did that in communist China or how they handled that in the Middle Ages. Or we can go back to the book of Acts, which is inspired and laid out in front of us and try to see exactly how the early church thrived, literally thrived during persecution unlike anything we've ever suffered. And so what we're trying to do, go back, go back and try to figure out what they held on to that maybe we've forgotten. And one of the key elements is the kingdom of God. You know, I always knew that Jesus preached almost exclusively about the kingdom. I, all, I always knew, just from reading through the scriptures, that almost every one of his parables was to give you a picture of what the kingdom was like. The kingdom of heaven is like man sowing seed in his field. The kingdom of heaven is like a man looking for fine pearls. The kingdom of heaven is like. And we see this over and over again. And, but I've never heard many sermons preached on the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes they say the kingdom of heaven is just that heaven. Okay, that's, I don't see it that way, but okay. Or, or the kingdom of heaven is the church. Well, not really. Or the kingdom of heaven is just God's sovereign domain everywhere. Well, all right, but he's not sovereignly 
don't, you know, ruling everywhere right now because he gives us free will and people, including myself, basically shake their angry fist at his sovereign rule and say, we ain't going to do it. That's called sin and pride. Someday he will come and set up an earthly kingdom and where Satan will be bound. And, but that's not yet. So what is the kingdom of God? And we've talked about that, that the kingdom of God is the sovereign rule and reign of God someday on the earth, but right now in our lives. And so when Jesus makes statements like, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven, what he's saying is the fact that you're not far, who he's talking to, from embracing and surrendering to the sovereign rule of God. We, again, maybe you do, I, speaking for myself, I don't really understand what it means to have a king. When I think of a kingdom, as I shared with you last week, I think of a castle, and I think of a man, a human man, that's ruling over a certain domain. There are other kings, and sometimes this kingdom goes to war with that kingdom, and so we're kind of pressed into service, like movies that we've watched. The king gets older. Eventually, the king dies. His young son takes the throne. Maybe the young son isn't a good king. Maybe he's a bad king, like the history of Israel. And so I've got all these pictures in my mind of of a temporal kingdom ruled by a man who may or may not be an honorable person. King always has incredible wealth, and he takes that wealth by taxation from the serfs or his servants or his subjects that rule under him. I mean, that's the history of having a human kingdom. It's hard to to get your mind around this kingdom of God, just like if you were raised in a dysfunctional family and your father was an alcoholic abuser. That when you first hear about the fatherhood of God, it's really hard to wrap your mind around God being a father because this picture of your earthly father keeps leaking into your understanding of God's sovereignty. But the early church understood an emperor. They understood having kings. They understood how that worked. And they understood that if they belonged to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and they actually were members of his kingdom, that it literally changed everything. There's there's no fear of what an earthly king can do to me because I belong to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There's no fear about what's going to happen when I die because God, Jesus, has promised to receive me unto himself that where he is in his kingdom, I will be also. So when the early church began to live in this realm of understanding that we have a king and our king rules everything, and I belong to him, then all the other voices in their society got quieter. All the, other, all the fear that they had of, well, the Sanhedrin could come and, and take everything away. A mob could rise up and stone us like they did Stephen. I may lose my house and be banished from Jerusalem and have to just go out into all the areas out here making a living, doing something else in the foreign countries, which they did. And none of it fazed them because they understood they were on a mission that was far greater than the amount of wealth they accumulated in this earth. There have been Christians back then and today that have this confidence and boldness that they know that it doesn't matter what the world can do to him because greater is he, the king and the person of the Holy Spirit living in me than anything the world can throw against me. And therefore they 
They understood that I'm a child of the king, and they understood the privileges and rights that came with that because they understood that if God is the king, that nothing can happen to one of his citizens that surprises God. God, I'm in a situation that I can't get out of. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm looking at this, and man, you're in a heap of trouble. I don't know what to do. That never happens to God and to his children. And if by some chance... Things go bad for us in this dark kingdom. If by some chance we're imprisoned or you have an illness that there's no cure or your marriage breaks up or your kids go off the deep end, whatever happens to a child of a sovereign king, the king allows that to happen. And as we looked at two weeks ago, he does it because all things that the king allows to happen to his children All things work together for good to those who love the king, who love God, and are the called according to his choice, his purpose, the reason why he did it. Oh, so it's not about my life here. No, it's about what the king is doing through us here. He did not call us and save us to be rich and have our best life now. Sorry, that's a Western American narcissistic view of our existence. He called us to be light in darkness. And as it says in John 3, the light hates, or the darkness hates the light because the light exposes the evil deeds of darkness. That's why we're here. Everything else that happens is just a collateral blessing that comes from being the king. So you mean to tell me that sometimes bad things happen to good people? (laughs) Yes. And sometimes worse things happen to good people than happen to bad people because we have an enemy against us named Satan who those people who are aligned with him don't have as an enemy. We have this bullseye on our chest. And and yes, yes, sometimes bad things happen to good people. And as long as we focus on the waves and get our eyes off Jesus like Peter, we begin to sink. But once we understand this kingdom and understand his goodness and his glory and how merciful he is, then it doesn't matter what's thrown our way. We could actually unjustly accused, beaten, thrown in the inner prison with a bunch of criminals sing praise songs to the Lord in the midst of that situation because we know God knows what's best. We don't understand that in 15 minutes there's going to be an earthquake and the doors are going to open up and all of a sudden our chains are going to fall off. We have a choice of being free, but instead the whole purpose of us being free was not so that we can escape our temporal problems we're going through, but because there's this jailer over here that's about to kill himself, and we stop, and we share the gospel with him, and he takes us to his own house, and his own house gets saved, and a church begins, and life changes. That's the whole purpose of us being in this jail when we see the big picture and not just the small picture. So how do we understand his kingdom? It's, it's not by what we see, it's by what we know by faith. As it says here, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, that we walk, we live, we make our existence not by what we think or feel or manage or manipulate or work things out ourselves, but we walk by faith 
and not by sight. If we begin to understand how important this kingdom of God is and how his word can be trusted at anything, then we can take very familiar passages and we can look at them and realize if God is really the king and this passage is really true, then I should be able to have a life-changing understanding of who God is and my faith should grow immensely by just believing and accepting his promises. That's how our faith grows. I love this verse. It became more alive to me than it ever has about a month ago. It's the end of the... We're talk, we're, Paul in Romans is talking about this gospel presentation. Um, and here's how he ends up saying it. He says, so then faith comes... How? Tell me. Tell me how to have more faith. The disciples wanted to know how to have more faith. Increase our faith, Lord. How does faith come? I know what faith is. I read that in Hebrews. Tell me how it comes. Well, it comes by hearing. Hearing what? I mean, faith comes by hearing. So I have to have my ears open. I have to not only hear and listen. So what is, how does hearing come? Well, what am I supposed to hear? Hearing comes by or through the Word of God. So when I take the Word of God and I listen to it and hear what it says and believe what it says and act on what it says, and God shows through my acting on what it says that it is absolutely true, not the way I want to interpret it for what it truly says, then my faith grows and my faith soars. So I'm... I'm studying this, and I'm asking the Lord. I said, okay, um, give me an example. I know this is true. I want to share on Sunday an example. Give me an example. Give me something simple. Give me something familiar. Don't give me some exotic passage in Nahum that none of us even know. Give me something that we memorized in vacation Bible school. And show me, show me. This week, show me so I can share it with you how this actually works. And so we have a very familiar passage here. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4. But before we do, let me uh, give you a little background here. As we know, Ephesians is this, or not Ephesians, Philippians is this book of joy. And by the time we get to chapter 4, Philippians, there's a problem going on. And there's these two ladies in the church that can't get along with each other. And they're constantly arguing and they're constantly fighting and they're not talking to each other. And they're factions that have been brought up together. And, and now this church is kind of split. And so Paul is saying, this is just the context, Paul is saying, like in verse number uh, two, I implore these two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. Put aside your petty differences. And I urge you also, true companions, help these women. Oh, we've moved beyond it now. Now we're talking about the church in general, who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, you're fighting about petty things. And you're forgetting the fact that you're dealing with this crumbs that come off the table and you're a king or you're a child of the king sitting at his table ready for a feast. So forget about these petty things. Your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Rather than arguing and everything, here's what you should be doing. Very familiar passage. You're to rejoice not necessarily in your circumstances, but in the Lord, always, always. 
uh, Paul, um, you don't know the situation I'm in right now. Can you run that by me again? Sure. Again, I will say rejoice. I mean, I already said that in chapter 3, verse 1. Now I'm saying it again in chapter 4. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. All right, so we're looking at a familiar verse, which is verse 4, Philippians 4, 4, we know. Philippians 4, 5, we kind of know. When we get to Philippians 4, 6, that's another one that we really know. All right, Lord, show me how this, uh, show me how this works, because I have some questions. How in the world am I to rejoice always? I'm, how am I supposed to do that? I got a report back from my doctor, says that um, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, uh, or I've uh, just lost my job, or there's an uh, illness that's going around and it looks like I'm going to catch it. Uh, our inflation, I'm on a fixed income, and inflation is taking away all the money that we have. I was married, and now my spouse has run off with somebody else. My kids won't have anything to do with me anymore. I've been praying for 15 years, 15 straight years, every single day that you would do this, and you haven't. Explain to me, in situations like that, how am I supposed to rejoice? You add whatever you're struggling with in there. And all of a sudden, we have this command, this very familiar command that seems offensive. It seems like you don't even want to hear what my problems are. All you want to do is like give me this platitude that says rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say to you, rejoice. Wow, I'm offended. I'm sitting here and I'm sharing with you this woe story I have, and this is all you can tell me? Um, God, how is that possible? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by or through the Word of God. All right, I'm hearing this passage from the Word of God, and my faith is not getting any better. As a matter of fact, my emotions are kind of boiling right now. I don't understand how this works. Well, let's figure out and see exactly what the passage says. All right, Lord, I'm, I'm asking you to make this true. Um, make me like one of the early church members who were going through terrible times and yet did this. How does this work? Am I missing something in the translation? So we start looking at a few words. Exalt. I mean, re rejoice. It means to be filled with joy greatly almost giddy to take pleasure in. Yeah, my man, I'm so excited. This is, this is incredible. Look, we're going to do this and this and this and this. And it's, it's just great. I'm rejoicing and filled with joy, not happiness. Happiness comes from things. I'm happy with my wife. I'm happy with my kids. I'm happy with my job. I'm happy with my vacation. Joy is something much deeper than that. I'm to have great joy. I'm rejoicing Oh, there's a context to this rejoicing. I'm not rejoicing necessarily in my circumstances. I'm rejoicing in him, in the Lord. This is curios. And it really has an amazing definition because it tells you exactly who the king is. He is your master. He is your owner. He is the one who possesses you. He is your sovereign. He is your ruler. Oh, oh, I get, I get like a doulos, like, like a bond slave, like a voluntary bond slave that I surrender myself voluntarily to the total lordship of Jesus Christ. 
who as a slave and him as the owner, he is my master, my Lord, my ruler, my sovereign. He possesses me. I belong to him. Therefore, it's his responsibility to take care of me. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to eat or drink or wear, for the Gentiles seek after those things. I'm beginning to see this now, but I'm to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and the king takes care of everything else. Oh, I got that. I'm to rejoice no matter how bad the circumstances in my possessor and my master always. In the Greek, here's what it means. Perpetually, evermore, throughout all time, in the past, the present, the future, continuously, under any circumstances, always. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm in prison right now. Rejoice in the Lord always. I, um, I just won the lottery. Rejoice in the Lord always. Doesn't matter your circumstances. And Paul was so emphatic about this. He goes again, and you can read it in chapter 3, verse 1. I will say, rejoice. Okay, I'm, um, Lord, I'm troubled. I, I, I understand if I take that out of context and just kind of memorize it, that it's like a standalone truth. I mean, I, I can handle it that way. But, I mean, what, what is it actually saying? It, it's saying, really simple, to rejoice in your possessor and master and sovereign and king always, forevermore, past, present, and future. Okay, what, what, is it, what is it not saying? What, what, what am I missing here? How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord when all my life is falling apart? How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord when he doesn't answer my prayers? How am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord when I come to him with childlike faith, pleading and crying, Daddy, Papa, please, can you do this for me or take this away from me? And his response is no. Or worse than that, silence. I, I don't understand. How am I, how am I supposed to rejoice in that? Because if God was good, he would give to me what I think is good. If God is good, he would do good things defined by me and my limited vision, what I want, what my, my sincerely held prayer request. And if God doesn't do those things, my faith is not big enough or strong enough to accept the fact that maybe his ways are higher. And when the all things work together for good, I don't want those all things to be my worst nightmare. True? What am I, what am I supposed to do? Do I rejoice in my circumstances? That's not what it says. The object of our rejoicing is him, our king, our king. And the only way we can really understand that is to be able to understand really what this word kurios means. It means master, owner, possessor. I got that. Sovereign, ruler, Lord. I am rejoicing in the fact that my possessor, the one who purchased me with a price, it happens to be the blood of his son that owns me, that I belong to him, that I am his. 
that my possessor is good, loving, kind, glorious, long-suffering, full of grace, and full of mercy, and only does what's good for his children, better than any earthly father we can imagine, better than Andy Taylor, better than James Dobson, better than Ward Cleaver. I'm dating myself now. Better than any image we have of the greatest father ever. But it doesn't feel that way sometimes because sometimes my father says no to things that I want to do. Well, yeah, just like you say no to your kids. Hey, Dad, I'm 12. Can I drive? No. If you loved me, you'd let me drive. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, then I hate you. you. You say you love me and you want what's good for me. I think I could drive. You won't let me drive. You're a bad father. But nevertheless, we take those same kind of traits and place them on our God. No, no matter what circumstance we're going through, when you understand God and his sovereignty, that we rejoice even in those circumstances always about what a great king he is. And we're to do that always. I just married the woman of my dreams. I rejoice in the Lord. The woman of my dreams has just run off with some younger man. Hurts. I rejoice in the Lord always. I'm at the the pinnacle of my physical health and ability. I rejoice in the Lord. I'm a confined to a wheelchair. My body's declining. I I have Lou Gehrig's disease. It's getting worse every single day. And I rejoice in the fact that I have a loving, wonderful possessor and king. Whether it's good or bad, rainy or shiny, painful or full of bliss, our command is to rejoice in the Lord always. Well, Lord, what are you saying to us? Well, I I want you to realize what I don't have in this verse. I am not taking any consideration your circumstances. Why? Because you're narcissistic and I am king. You trust me when things go well. I am king and I know better than you. My ways are higher than yours. My understanding is better than yours. I see the end from the beginning. I understand that sometimes trials and tribulations are good because they perfect your faith and make you strong and teach you perseverance, like in James, and make you complete in everything. If my son went through this trial to become who he was, why do you think you get a pass? God did not consider their circumstances when he gave this command. Whether they're great or whether they're terrible, whether they have nothing to eat or whether they have money coming out of their ears, his command was in every circumstance, irrespective, to rejoice in him always. Why? Why? How is that possible? Well, the early church did it. The early church did it continually because they had a big picture view of God versus a small picture. The small picture is what I see, what affects me personally, this kind of narcissistic view of life. The big picture is God's kingdom. Watch what they did. Acts chapter 5, they uh, have been told again not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And now instead of being warned, they are actually going to suffer for that. 
They agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, oh no, that's really bad, and it is, it's terrible. They beat him, they flogged him, probably beat him with rods. Worst physical pain probably any of us, if we went through that, have ever experienced. We don't ever want to do that again. It probably took weeks for some of those wounds to heal. Well, no, 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 we don't want to be beaten, God. We want to do something else. We want to you know, just live a good life. Nobody wants to go through this. And if we focus life on the small pictures, it's, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Look what they've done to us. They've taken our job and our money, and they have beaten us. And they commanded that we should no longer speak in the name of Jesus and let us go limping back to our friends. So they departed from the presence of the council. What? Rejoicing? What are you guys, masochist? How can you rejoice as you're limping back to your, to your church with blood-stained garments, having this judicial decree hanging over you that is going to get worse and you're going to die if you violate this, and we're rejoicing? Oh, I get it, because it's not about this world. It's not about what's affecting us right now. It's about God's kingdom. And the greatest blessing of all is being conformed to the image of the king. And so we're rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer shame like Christ, that we became a little bit more like Christ because we held on to the big picture. And what did they give us? Boldness, confidence, daily in the temple, daily in the hotbed of opposition and in every house did not cease teaching probably people who had just got saved and preaching getting people saved with the gospel jesus as the christ as the messiah so um guys if i could have a conversation with the early church weren't you afraid why well i, I you could get beaten again so what well, but there's something greater than getting beaten? Well, yeah, being conformed to the image of my son. Oh, I see what your problem is, Steve. You have a little view of Christ. You think Jesus came to make your life better. You think Jesus is going to let you skate through this life on earth unscathed. You think this is your best life now. You don't realize that you're a soldier on a mission, an ambassador, the king, and a dark, foreboding world to bring light in places that wants to stamp out his name. And as long as it's about you, Steve, you view, oh, it's terrible, what's happening? When you see it's all about him, thank you, God, for allowing us to experience just a little of what your son did to become more like him. Because if God wanted us not to be beaten, all those guys in the Sanhedrin, we could have dropped dead at just the thought of God. He could have rescued us. He could do anything he wants as the king. But since he chose this, and since I've chosen him, I have no fear of man. None. I have no fear of the government. I have no fear of this or that or the other because God is King of kings and Lord of lords. That takes a little bit more faith than most in the church have today because we still view life being about us. I go on social media. And I'm looking at everybody being about them. And I'm going to post stuff about me. Here's my meal. Here's a new picture of my haircut I got. 
I'm driving in my car. Here's a picture of me. Here's a picture of me. Oh, here's what music I'm listening to right now. Hey, I just went to this movie. Let me tell you what my thoughts are about this. Me, 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 me. How many likes do I have? Because it's all about me. Everything's about me. Church is about me. Life is about me. God is about me. I want to understand what I eat, how much money I make. At the end of my life, I want to have a lot of wealth and be able to do everything that I want to do because it's all about me. Not for them. For them, it was all about him. Him. Their jobs were opportunities to evangelize wherever he placed us, not opportunities to build many empires to ourselves. It was all about him. And look at the confidence they had. How did that, how did that even happen? They focused on not what they had lost or what it cost them, but they focused on being more like Christ. And this is what happens when a group of believers sees Jesus as more than a savior, but Jesus as the king. As long as he's a savior, he's doing something for you. Hey, uh, um, Susan, uh, listen, I died on a cross for you. I really did. I love you so much. I just can't tell you how much I love you. Would you just please accept my love? Please, 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 pretty please. Will you believe in me? And if you do, I'll give you all these goodies. Oh, well, I'd fine. But I'm still king of my life, and I just call on you like a genie in a bottle when I need you. Is that okay, God? And that's kind of how we view him. But when we view him as king, that allows us entrance into his kingdom, bold access to the throne of glory, everything changes. Everything changes. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Lord, is there more? Sure. Even under these trials and tribulation, I'm going to let my gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. What in the world does that mean? How am I supposed to respond when, when you know, I'm supposed to rejoice in the Lord irrespective of what happens? This is a, um, this is a statement and a reason. This is one of the, the blessing statements that God tells us something and then tells us why. And the hardest part of this is this word, Pass this word all. Let your gentleness be known to all men. All, like my friends and my families and my church members and the people who love me? Yes. And also institutions, governments, people who hate you, malign you, and want to kill you. Oh, there's not a distinction between those two? No, the word pass, we're going to look at in a minute. Pass means each and every in totality with no exception. All men. Doesn't just say let your gentleness be known among believers. Let your gentleness be known among families or those who are like-minded or like on social media. You know, I follow you. There's people that follow me back. Not that. But let your gentleness be known to all men. Uh, okay. I don't know what gentleness means. and I don't even know why this is attached to this. Can you help me? Sure. Gentleness means your tolerance your mercifulness, your kindness, even when you're mistreated, forbearing, considerate, yielding, to be lenient and unassertive. You can look this up in the book I gave you. Oh, my goodness. So I'm to be like Christ, like Christ, like a lamb who was taken to the slaughter and did not even cry out. Someone who did not even make their own demands. 
I'm, I'm to, to be like that. Let your gentleness, which means I must have this inside of me because it's not like I'm generating it, you know, become gentle. It means that I must have this trait inside of me, one of the spiritual gifts, and now I'm to not hold it back, but actually let it flow. Let my gentleness and my mercifulness to the people who are doing this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus said that, and so did Stephen. And let it be known, that's gnosko, let it be known by experience and with great love and pleasure to all men. What, to Biden? To the Supreme Court? To the Democrats? To the local officials who won't let me open my business? To the people who demand that I have to live under this kind of draconian society? That all these people that are going to try to tax me and take my money and make my life more difficult and make gas prices go up to 8 or $9 a gallon? Maybe I'll lose my job. To all men, I don't have to fight my battle. What? That's what America's based on. I know. But you belong to a king. A king. God can take care of himself. He doesn't need you to defend him. That's the hardest thing for me to understand. I don't have to defend God. God can defend himself. I just have to be his tool and his instrument and his light in darkness. Let your gentleness be known to all men. I can't do that in the flesh. It is not humanly possible to do that. Well, sure it is. It's really simple. We're commanded, no matter what the circumstances, whether it's people or institutions, to let our mercy and tolerance and forbearance and unassertiveness be known by everyone. But but that makes us wimps. No. That makes us confident servants of the Most High God who can do anything He wants to any person that He wants at any time. The scripture says that he's the one that raises up governments and he's the one that brings them down. He's the one that takes care of everything. Let God be the one who seeks revenge, not us. And this is the hardest thing for me because my heroes are like Rambo and you know, people that see an injustice and go out and take care of all that kind of stuff. And that's not what it's saying here. That's if I'm ruling my kingdom and I think that what I see is all there is. But God is much stronger and bigger than that. If he, wanted to, if he wanted to rescue Peter from jail, he could. If he wanted Peter to suffer a flogging, he did. If he wanted to, to have Paul get bit by some viper and die, he would have. But instead, he throws it off into the, the fire and still lives. And people marvel at that. Thought he was a god. Do you remember? How do you have this kind of love and grace and mercy that allows us to live that way. I mean, the early church believed it, but how can we struggle with that? What do we do? Well, here's where I have missed it. I'm not preaching to you. I'm telling you where I have missed it. This is what the Lord showed me this week. It was the reason. The command, okay. The reason why I have a hard time with the command is because I haven't really believed the reason. First, here's the the command, of course, is the Lord is at hand. I thought that's like some phrase you put in there, like in Jesus' name. No, no. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
Matter of fact, let your gentleness known to all men, no matter what happens, no matter what they do, all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The possessor, the kurios, the sovereign ruler, the master, the king of kings, the Lord of lords is at hand. That word is egus. I want to look it up. It means close, nearby, ready to help. Jesus was sitting in the garden. The detachment, probably as many as four or five hundred soldiers had come to arrest him. Peter decides he would make this bold move and he pulls out his sword and he whacks off somebody's ear. Actually, probably wasn't aiming for the ear, but the guy moved his head, whacked off his ear and Jesus stopped him and said, don't you realize the Lord is near? That the Father has put legions of angels at the rim of the universe? That all I have to do is look up? All he has to do is think the thought? And they would come down here and obliterate everything? Do you think I'm in being held hostage to these people and there's nothing God can do about it? Nevertheless, let his will be done. The Lord is near. A goose. I looked up just a couple passages to see how that's used. I'm only going to show you three. Simply means that uh, we're not alone. We're not left as orphans. That God is always with us and God is always with them as children of the king. When he's talking about the end times and he's talking about all these signs that come together, here's what he says. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is a goose. It is near. How near is it? Right at the door. I mean, he's that close, this event that's taking place. Same word, it talks about God being near. In Revelation 1 and at the end of Revelation, that word is used. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps the things which are written in it. Why? For the time is near. The time is close. The time is at hand. Agus, at the very end of the book of Revelation. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Again, why? For the time is at hand. The time is imminent. It is that close. The Lord is at hand. I have a confession to make. I never really think about this. I mean, I really don't. Um, if I'm facing a, a trial or tribulation, I'm facing something terrible in my life, I sit back and I ask God for wisdom, and then I start figuring it out on my own. I start trying to figure out what to do, and this, that happens. And, and the way I am is I look at every, if I'm having a conversation with someone, could be confrontational, that I'm, I look at every possible thing I could say, every possible response they could have, and then I go down every one of those responses so I'm never caught off guard, know exactly what direction it's going. It's like a huge website with all these links, and, and I spend time thinking about it or brooding on it. Really, I'm worrying about it. So when it happens, um, wow. Here we go. It was incredible. He had it all in control, knew exactly what he was doing. I wasted all this time trying to handle it myself because I forgot that God is near, that God is at hand, that God is ready to help, that God is close, that God has not left us as orphans. He gave us himself as the Holy Spirit living within us for a reason. So, Lord, what does it mean to live like that, to have that kind of confidence? I see it in Scripture. I see these brave heroes of the faith. You know, uh, 
I, I, we're not going to bow down to your idol. Well, let me tell you, if you don't, I'm going to burn this, get this furnace so hot that the people throwing you in are going to get killed by the heat. And what God is able to rescue you from my hands, says Nebuchadnezzar. Well, our God can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your idol. Where does that boldness come from? I know my God is near. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. And do you remember who they saw walking around in the den with him? God is near. The Philippian jailers and everything else we look in Scripture, God is near. God's ready to help. And all we have to do, all they did is rely on him. It doesn't matter what, what direction we go. We're following you. And if we run into a brick wall and we die like Stephen, as the rocks are coming at him and his life is ebbing away, he looks up and I, say, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Father, forgive them for their sins. How is that possible? He understood God is near, as if he's with us in every situation. Every situation. That's how the early church lived. That's how they understood the kingdom of God, no matter what came their way. Now, everything I just told you up until this point was an introduction. Let me get to the nugget of the, um, the actual amazing thing that took place. I started with 4.4 and 4.5, and I thought I was going to stop there. And the Lord moved me on to 4.6, which is unbelievable. Verse we all know, sometimes when you have questions, God anticipates those questions, and as a loving father, he always gives you the answer. And usually you find the answer by continually reading. Lord, uh, I don't know if I can rejoice in all situations. I'm thinking about all the terrible things that are going on or terrible things that could happen. And, you know, the slaughter that took place in, in Texas just a couple days ago, the police that stood down while all that was happening. I mean, it's just insane what's going on. God, how is that even possible? I'm worried about my kids. I'm worried about this. I'm worried about that. I'm worried about the economy and my health and my future. And the Lord, I'm just worried to death working myself to the bone, trying to figure out what to do, and you tell me just to rest in you? I prayed for 15 years for this to happen, and it hasn't happened. I'm beginning to doubt you even love me. Why? Because I'm not doing what you want? Yeah, pretty much, although I don't like to coin it that way. What do we do? How do we live like this? How do we let our gentleness be known to all men? It's really simple. And it's what he says next. You know this passage. But I'm going to show you something about this passage you may not have seen before. It says, be anxious for nothing. <laughs> that's crazy. I know. That's what it says. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, I'm not to be anxious. I'm just supposed to let God know about it. I'll let my request be known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I remembered that. I memorized that as a, as a vacation Bible school student. I've quoted it in here. I, I know that verse. What does that have to do with anything? That's just one of those verses that are for preaching, not necessarily for living. What is God actually saying? Okay. You have a command and a promise. The command is... Very straightforward. The promise is supreme. Here's what he says. Be anxious for nothing, comma, but. 
Whenever you see a comma, but, circle it, because there's always, we're always going somewhere else in Scripture. Be anxious for nothing, comma, but. But in everything, really, I mean, like everything? Well, we'll see what that word means. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, oh, that's a tough one. Let your requests be known unto God, and if I do, what will you do? Well, I'll let this peace of God surpasses anything you've ever experienced. Guard your hearts and minds from who or from what through Christ Jesus. So I'm told to rejoice always in the Lord, irregardless of my situations. And if those situations turn really bad, I let my gentleness be known to all men because God is near. And God is so near that he follows up with saying, I'm not to worry about anything. Because if I don't worry and I trust God and just lay my petitions at his feet, that he will give me something far greater than anything I'm struggling with. And it's this peace of God. But I want you to notice what the promise doesn't say. It doesn't say that you're guaranteed that God will remove from you whatever you're praying about. Lord, I'm, I'm in this jail cell and my execution is tomorrow and I haven't done anything wrong, God, would you please get me out of here tonight? Um, no guarantee. Scripture doesn't say that you're going to get what you want. This Scripture does not say that you won't feel pain or suffering or death or loss or anguish, that your worst nightmares won't actually materialize in front of you. This, this verse, this promise doesn't guarantee any of that. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have a positive outcome, what you want. It doesn't guarantee that if we got everybody in the world together and said, what's the best thing for Steve? Well, the best thing for Steve is this would happen, that that's what's going to happen. The verse doesn't promise any of those things, but it does promise something that the Lord views as more important, and I'll show you why in a minute, than just answering your prayer request than it being all about us. Here's what he says. It says, be anxious for nothing. And later on it says that uh, our hearts and minds will be guarded. Well, guarded from what? From doubt. Guarded from fear. Guarded from saying that God doesn't love you and God doesn't care about you because we serve a sovereign king who knows best. And sometimes when he knows best, is when he says no to his children. And like children, like a nine-year-old or a three-year-old, we have a tendency of pitching fits, and I don't love you anymore because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. But he could if he wanted to, and if he chooses not to, there's obviously a reason that he knows best. And this is where the faith comes from. This is where it comes from living in his kingdom and accepting what he gives us. The early church understood that. If we go over there and preach the gospel, they're going to arrest us, and I'm going to lose my job. Cost. But Jesus said to go over there and preach the gospel. I don't know if it's worth it to me. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about the cost. This is what he said. Come what may. If they arrest us, we'll either go to jail, we'll either die, or he'll let us get escape, or he'll break us out of jail. He can do whatever he wants. My job is to be about the big picture and not about the little picture. Be anxious. 
trouble, concern, worry about nothing. Not anybody, not anything. It literally means nothing at all. Whatever you put on your list of worries, the government, inflation, Ukraine, nuclear war, COVID-19, 2.7, you know, having to take a, the jab if I'm going to get a new job or, or all these kind of crazy things that we worry about over and over, getting, a little, getting older or not having friends or whatever, all those things that worry, be concerned, uh, be troubled, be anxious for nothing. Nothing, nothing. Jesus said, give no thought to your life. Like, like what? Like the physical part, which you can eat, drink, or wear. What we most worry about, us, give no thought to any of those things. I mean, the birds don't, and God takes care of those. The animals don't, and God takes care of those. Are you not worth more than they are? Oh, you of little faith. Remember? Be anxious for nothing. I don't need to worry about anything or trouble about anything. After all, my father's the great king. He's sovereign over all his creation, and he's not going to let anything happen to his children that is beyond his power. It's not like somebody else is going to drag me away and God can't rescue me. Whatever happens in God's sovereignty, whatever Satan is allowed to do to you comes under the permissive will of God the Father. Read the book of Job. It's not like, ah, Satan, gosh, you took my rook. I didn't see that one coming in a big chess game. It doesn't work that way. God is sovereign, and Satan is just a created angel. Be anxious for nothing. I have some verses here that you should be familiar with. I'll go through these quickly for time. Don't worry about anything, because your father knows you need all these things, and what he's not going to take care of his children of course he takes care of his children. You take care of yours. Why would he not take care of you? 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. What are we supposed to do? Cast our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you more than you care for you. Isaiah 41, 10. I love that. Fear not. Why? Because the Lord is near. Because I am with you. Do not be dismayed, no matter how terrible things get. Why? For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Will you really? Yes. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You are in the hand of your father, the king. And my favorite verse, when people laugh at you and say, where is your God? You simply say this, my God's in his heavens. And you know what? He does what he pleases. He can rescue me. Well, he won't rescue me, but either way, he is my God. And I will not bow down to your idol. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, that's where faith comes in, let your requests be known unto God. Okay, I'm not worried about anything, so I'm going to go ahead and place all my confidence in God, and I'm going to ask him to answer my prayers, and hopefully he'll answer them my way. But often he doesn't. So it doesn't matter whether he does or not. I'm thankful for the fact that I'm able to take my prayers and supplications and lay them before the Lord and trust my King and my God and my Father with those. And whatever you choose to do, God, you know what's best. I'm your servant. I'm your slave. You are my possessor. This is what I'm struggling with. 
I place it at your feet, knowing that you care for me. What will you do? Will you answer my prayer? I'm not going to tell you. Why? Because there's something better than an answered prayer. Listen very carefully. Something much better than an answered prayer. And here's what it is. You will experience this peace. Not peace from God. Not a peace that he has in a bundle, and I'm just going to shoot a little over Steve's way. But the peace of God. The peace that he has. The peace that belongs to him. The peace that Christ had. The peace that's imparted to you by the Holy Spirit that lives in you. A peace that the world can't understand, that you can't understand, that surpasses all knowledge or understanding, and it will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. I need to know, I, I need to know what, these, uh, what these verses mean and what this peace is he's talking about. Okay. The peace of God, which surpasses, that word means greater than, to excel over and above. It's like having a cup and it's absolutely flowing over. That it surpasses all, that's pos, each, every, in totality, without exception, understanding. And this word understanding is your intellectual understanding, it's your emotional understanding, it's your inclinations or your thoughts. It's like a, it's like a, a large word, a catch-all word, that anything that you can conceive in your mind, this peace that you will get in the middle of turmoil will help guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The word guard means to keep, preserve, to hold fast. It's literally to watch like a warden, to protect. Because God's major objective here is when you're suffering and you have a prayer request, he wants to make sure that Satan doesn't come in and destroy your faith by saying, God doesn't love you. If he loved you, he'd give you exactly what you wanted. Because that's what Joel Osteen says. That's what the largest churches in America say, that it's your best life now. And since he hasn't done that, hasn't answered your prayer, that he's not a good God or you're not a good servant or a good son. It'll guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. This peace is better than a desired outcome. This peace is better than anything. And I want to show you why. And we'll close with this. You've seen this phrase. Give a man a fish. Remember the rest of it? And you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish. And you feed him for a lifetime. True? works exactly the same way with your relationship with God. Ask a specific prayer request. God grants you that request, and you expect him from that point on to give you whatever you ask. Cultivate a relationship with God as good and loving and loves what's best for you, and you will grow into the likeness of him and trust him no matter what the circumstances. One is seeking God's hand, I'll give you this, and the other one is seeking his face. And the most important thing God wants us to have in this passage is an understanding of who he is. I have a prayer request, 
And God, I've trusted it to you. I don't care when you're going to get it done. I don't care how long it's going to take to do it. I'm just trusting you. And God will give you this peace to know, you know what? You've given it to the King of kings and Lord of lords who loves you and cares for you. Don't pick it up anymore. Don't worry about it anymore. Don't fret about it anymore. I've got it. Are you going to take care of it today? How about tomorrow? The next day? When's it going to happen? On Thursday? Not for you to worry about. But I am. I'm not. I have this peace that I don't really understand. I'm still suffering under the circumstances, but I know God's going to take care of it. Why? Because he promised he would, one way or the other. That's exactly how Jesus was in his relationship with him. It's exactly this, this silver nugget that these heroes of the Old and New Testament had, this abject trust in God's goodness and not necessarily in him giving them exactly what they want. We live in a give-it-to-me-now kind of society. I'm really bad about this. Um, I'll go onto a web page and I'll see an article, the title I want to read. The first thing I'll do is I'll scroll down and see how long it is. Oh my, you know, and I'll say, nah, I'm not interested. So now to beat people like that, with me, what they do in these articles is they place a little thing up there that says three-minute read, five-minute read. Have you noticed that? That's for people like me that have ADD, and they go, oh, can I invest three minutes? I don't really think I am. I get ready to watch a video. The video comes up. The video is over four minutes long. I ain't got four minutes to sit here and watch that. I'm, I can't do that for four minutes. And even if I want to, after a minute and a half, I want to go on to something else. My grandkids, they don't watch television. They watch YouTube. And everything on YouTube is flash, boom, bam, bam. It's this and that and that. Move quickly and really fast. And from this channel, that channel, and this channel, that channel, and this episode, that episode. And all it's doing is teaching us we want things now. We want to demand things now. And we end up incorporating all of that into our spiritual life. God, I prayed like, like eight minutes ago, and nothing's happened. What's wrong with you? Don't you love me? doesn't work that way. God is not at our beck and call. He's a king. And we've laid our request to the king, and the king has said, I've got it, son. Then he's got it. And we have this peace of God that passes all understanding. One is temporal meet my need now. And the other one's eternal. I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you as the king and rest in you because you could meet it if you wanted to. You could give it to me right now. You could do exceedingly abundantly beyond all I even ask or think if you chose to. But if you don't, I will still serve and love you. That's life in the kingdom. Okay. But that's hard to live by. Yeah, it is. How do we condition ourselves to think those kind of thoughts about God? That's really simple. You keep reading. And it helps you cultivate an attitude of faith. And here's what you read. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, attributes of God, whatever is noble, God, whatever things are just, God, whatever things are pure, God, whatever things are lovely, of good report, if there's anything, if there's any virtue in him, and anything praiseworthy, and there is, meditate, think, ruminate on these things. Ah, not on me, not on my wants, my desires, what, what I think is best, but on him. And there will be zero room in your psyche for doubt.
for fear, for trepidation, because we serve a might. No, I hate the serve part. We are children of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who can do anything he wants at any time he wants, to any degree he wants, and all he tells us is to not worry about anything in this world. This is from Philippians. We can read the same words from Jesus, but just trust him with it and spend our lives seeking him, his righteousness, and his kingdom, and he will take care of everything for us. True? And nothing can faze us, and we walk on in abject bliss, having this peace that passes all understanding. The early church knew this. I want to cultivate this in my own life, in all areas of my life. Some I have, some I really struggle with. And I think it's one of the keys that leads to this higher Christian life. Amen? Let me pray.